The uh, we are obviously we're, we're continuing on with the series of the mysteries of God. This is part five in the series. I wanted to start though with an overview of the the environment that we are in today, just worldwide. Um, we we know that we live on the planet where God uh, restricted the great deceiver. Uh, the oppressor of God's people, uh, God's adversary, and he is is known and described in the scripture as the great deceiver. His pattern that we should be aware of and notice uh, is to counterfeit. Uh, he provides false alternatives that appear like the real thing. We're warned of that repeatedly through scripture. He He hides deceit under layers of truth. So if we're not looking deep enough, what seems on the surface to be okay, we might just accept. Paul talked about that to the Galatians, that if another Christ was presented to them, they just might just might accept it. Uh, just If only just on the surface, it appeared to look okay. We're supposed to look deeper, and we're supposed to have an understanding of how to do that. We were warned of this by Christ and also his apostles. Oh, my throat is a little dry. Three times in Matthew 24, Jesus warns his disciples not to be deceived. First, by those who would claim to come in his name. That's in verse 5. Secondly, by lying prophets, false prophets, uh, claiming to speak from God's word, and being expounding on his word or predict events and so on. That's in verses 11 and 24. Of Matthew 24, and then thirdly, by false Christs, versions of Christ, different uh, descriptions of Jesus Christ. And uh, if you, again, don't take this warning to heart, all of those things you would just take for granted. If someone said he came in his name, that might be enough. If they prophesied or expounded on scripture, well, that might be enough if they're interpreting it their own way or somebody else's way. We may not see or recognize that. Or by false Christ, versions of Christ. His apostles also echoed these these warnings. Um, I'll just read these for you. The last one we'll turn to. But for 2 Corinthians 11, verses 13 through 15, Paul here warns about false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. Well, what would that transformation look like? On the surface, it would be filled with humility and and uh, someone who could preach and teach from the scriptures and so on. goes on to write, And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. Again, this is a warning from Paul. Don't be deceived by individuals or organizations that are doing this. Don't sit there and think just because you're in a church of God that you are you don't have the responsibility to do that for yourself individually. Oh, it sounds sounds good. Sounds like it fits the scriptures. It sounds nice. And aren't they nice people? So, they're fine. 2 Timothy 3 and verse 13. Paul here is writing to a pastor, Timothy, at that point a pastor of Ephesus. He writes but evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. It's an indication here that those who are deceived don't know they're deceived. 
they think they may have something that qualifies to be the truth. They have no way of deciding or seeing or separating, I could say dividing with the word of God, what is true and what is not. James also said this. He said, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. That's in James 1, verse 16. I'd like to, uh, us here to turn to Second Peter 2, though. Second Peter 2, verses 1 and 2. Because there's a connection here we need to see to understand this next mystery. Second Peter chapter two verse one. But there were there are, are I'm sorry. But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you. This itself is a prophecy that this will continue on. Peter must have seen and understood that God requires His people to be able to discern between false teachers and true ones who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. How, how, how does it happen secretly? I mean, if you know and understand the truth to its core, how can there be a heresy secretly brought in? Even denying the Lord who bought them, we'll talk about that a bit later, and bring on themselves swift destruction these, from these destructive heresies. And many, notice that again, and Christ said this as well, many will come in his name, and many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. These are individuals within the body of Christ. Notice, remember, he said, false prophets among the people, this is everywhere, even as there will be false teachers among you. We have to be able to discern this even within the church of God because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. How is that possible? How is it possible to blaspheme the way of truth unless the way of truth is unknown within the body of Christ? This is paramount for us to keep our guard up, discern things, scrutinize, make sure that we are skeptical of what we're hearing, not cynical, not assuming it's bad, but recognizing based upon the environment that was predicted that we would be in and have to face, we need to develop those skills. Think critically without speaking necessarily critically of others. Today, those who profess Christianity number just over 2.6 billion worldwide. That's actually growing, mostly overseas, but or outside of the United States, I should say. That's about 36% of the world's population today. It's a huge number. Christian denominations number in the tens of thousands. Uh, Each claim Christ's authority. Each has their own interpretation of Scripture, their own teaching on prophecy, and their own version of Jesus Christ, which pick one of those four is a reason why most uh, are separated from one another, why there's so much division. Huge number of people, 2.6 billion. Yet, Jesus said that his flock would be little. He said that in Luke 12, verse 32. His flock is small. And that few would be on that very difficult path he described in Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14, toward that very narrow gate that leads to life. So what are we looking at in our situation in the world today? Is all that is necessary to be a Christian is to say that Jesus is the Lord or Jesus is my Lord? Is it just about what comes out of someone's mouth? 
Some believe so, and they'll turn to one scripture to prove this to themselves. 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 3. 1 Corinthians 12, 3, I'll read this for you. Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed. Totally get that. If the Spirit of God is inspiring someone to speak, there's no way they would curse Christ. And then it goes on to say, and no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So does that mean that anyone who says that Jesus is Lord is being led by the Holy Spirit? Just answer that question in your own mind. Because you're going to need the rest of Scripture to describe that for you, to, to help you to understand it. In Luke 6 and verse 46 Christ said, but why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things that I say? Look at Matthew 7 here. There are a number of scriptures on this that help us to understand this is not just about what someone professes. It's not just about what they say. Now, we don't have to condemn them uh, because they're not... uh, They're not being led by the Holy Spirit when they speak words like this. And you can see this. We'll explain how you actually understand that. We don't condemn them. That's between them and God. But we should be able to discern that's not not the way I live. That's not what I believe. And that's not what the Holy Spirit inspires to do. This is Matthew 7, verses 20 through 23. Here Christ is, is telling them to beware of false prophets in verse 15. And he gives them a way of understanding this in verse 20. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. It doesn't say that you will know them by their words, but by their fruits. What do they produce in their life? Verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, we have... uh, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many things in your name? And verse 23, And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Note Jesus' references here to doing, to practicing, and to producing good fruits in these few verses. In the very deceived Words are often refuted by behavior. So what they say or what they profess is not backed up by how they're acting or what they're doing or the practice of what they say they believe in. You can't discount that from evaluating their words. Why is that? How does it get to that point? Look at Mark chapter 7 here. Mark 7, we'll read verses 1 through 9. And I'll just I'll, I'll just summarize prior to verse six. The Pharisees were were criticizing the uh, Christ's disciples for not washing their hands uh, before they ate, and this this was a tradition. It's a ceremonially type uh, ceremonial type of washing, as the washing of cups, pitchers, copper vessels, and couches. You see this in uh, verse uh, verse four. And they asked Christ why his disciples did not do the same thing, trying to criticize, condemn. Verse six. He answered and said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, speaking, but their heart is far from me. The heart of who they are. We've just discussed this before, how they reason, how their conscience works, what their will is, what their passions are, are far from him. 
Verse 7, And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Something somewhere along the line displaced the word of God, displaced his commandments. They don't matter anymore. Verse 8, for, for laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups and many of the things which you do. And he said to them, all too well you reject or set aside, put aside the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. traditions. There are many counterfeit Christs today, many as Christ said there would be. Many false alternatives to true Christianity that exalt tradition or ritual or ceremony over the word of God. We have to be able to discern this. This prevents many from understanding the mystery of Christ. In this series that we're covering in mysteries, the the next one we will cover, number five in this series, is this mystery of Christ. The apostles were commissioned by Christ to speak of this mystery. Paul mentions this twice, Ephesians 3, verses 4 and 5. Uh, he mentions his knowledge of the mystery of Christ as he took the gospel to the Gentiles. And he taught them this. Uh, Colossians 4, verses 2 and 4, he said, uh, or he was asking for prayers that God would open doors so that he might speak the mystery of Christ. Well, what is the mystery of Christ? You would think in today's world, 2.6 million Christians, Bible's gone out to the entirety of the world, still the bestseller of any book on the, uh, uh, you, can, you can compare it to. Uh, if it, it's so much so it's not even counted anymore. Bibles are everywhere. Stories of Christ are everywhere. Movies of Christ are everywhere. You can find them, uh, uh, there are countless opportunities to learn about them. What then would be the mystery in Christ that is still there to this day? That's only refer or, or, or revealed to a few, as Christ said. What is this mystery of Christ? What of him cannot be known by those who only profess him? How and why does God come in flesh? That's the focus here. How and why does God come in flesh? Well, let's look at the how first, and then we'll look at the why afterwards. And we'll look at this at two level within each of those categories. Within how does God come in flesh? We'll look in Christ first, Jesus the Christ. And secondarily, we'll look how this happens within those God has called, opened their minds, given his spirit, and so on. We'll do the same thing within those two groupings in why. Does God dwell in the flesh? So here's the first one. Under how does God dwell in the flesh? Well, this is often hotly debated by theologians and wondered about by many. Jesus was fully God and fully flesh. The Bible explains that, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But nobody can figure out how does God dwell in flesh? How does the limitless, eternal spirit God, all-powerful, all-knowing, can do anything he wants, be anywhere he wants. How does that get confined into a tiny uh, micro, if you compare it to the entirety of the universe, a, a micro spot, something so small and unintelligible you couldn't see it from outside the planet? How does that get squeezed into a human body? Many don't understand this. It did happen. Uh, let's look at Luke 1. Luke chapter 1, we'll read verses 26 through 28. 
Each of the Gospels has a perspective on this. Well, we will be reading Luke's today. Luke 1, verses 26 through 28. Now, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel, this is the sixth month of uh, Elizabeth, she was the mother of John the Baptist, the sixth month of her uh, pregnancy. Uh, now, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to the city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. Of the house of David, the virgin's name was Mary. I'm sorry, Joseph of the house of David. That was a comma, not a period. Sorry. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when the when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. You ever had somebody come into the room and say, and just greet you over the top. And you're wondering, okay, what do you want? <laughs> this has had to be that in space. Verse 30, Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and he shall call his, uh, and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest, in reference to God. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I do not know a man? And the angel answered and said to her, This is the process by which God became a man. And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, also, that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. The Son of God. Uh, now, indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is now the sixth month for her who was uh, called barren. For with God, nothing will be impossible. Then Mary said, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. The miraculous origin of, of Christ is here uh, related to us. Um, the conception and birth of Jesus Christ is well known. Um, but it's and largely because it's celebrated this time of year. It's on every, many, many Christians' mind. And there are versions of it celebrated in, in every Christian church. But think of this. Why would those uh, who worship Jesus Christ use a pagan celebration and its origins to commemorate it if they are ignorant of how this happened? You, when you see this miracle and recognize how it could have happened, this reference to six months shows this had to happen sometime in the fall, the early fall, September, most think. Uh, but, but why is it moved to the, the beginning of winter uh, and why is it celebrated in the way that it is with trees brought into the house and decorated, which clearly uh, Jeremiah 10 lays out for us that's not to be done. God says, don't do that. Don't follow the way of the heathen. And, and why would anybody do that if they truly understand how this happened? In Isaiah 7, verse 14, Isaiah 7 and verse 14 uh Christ here is prophetically named. It's also mentioned in Matthew 1, verse 23. But though 
uh, he was prophetically named before he was born, Jesus eternally existed as the Word. Let's look at John here. John chapter 1, we'll read verses 1 through 4. When I say the Word, it's a direct translation from uh, the Greek that's mentioned in, in uh, John 1, uh, of the, from the word logos, L-O-G-O-S, the Greek word logos. It means word. It can also be used to mean expression or spokesman, as we've said and taught quite often. Let's look at John 1, verses 1 through 5. So this individual that was born or conceived and then born in the womb of the Virgin Mary uh, is actually someone that existed eternally. John 1, one. in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's pretty clear. Uh, we can also turn to uh, Philippians 2 and read a description between verses 5 and 11 of how uh, Christ understood that he was at one with the Father. They were at an equal level at some point and then decided to submit to him to become the Son and come and die for the, the good of humanity. Verse 2. He was in the beginning with God. So when all things were beginning and made, he was there. In fact, uh, we'll read in other places where everything was made through him. In fact, verse (laughs) 3. There's a number of places where we'll turn to another one in a moment. Verse 3. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. We'll, we'll, I'll mention this again in light of another verse when, uh, as we go forward. Recognize that, that the darkness did not comprehend the light that was in Christ, what, what he came to reveal. Verse 14 now, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word, the Logos that was just described, became flesh in Jesus the Christ, He he, uh, dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the one begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. This is how uh, Christ came. The eternally existing Logos was God and remained God even after emptying himself of his privileges as God. That's Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. And he came humbly uh, to live, dwell, and die in the flesh for a greater purpose. When he did, when he came to earth and dwelled in the flesh, he did not cease to be God. In all God's descriptions, uh, Colossians 1 and verse 19, I'll read these for you. Colossians 1 19. For please the Father that in him, in Christ, all the fullness should dwell. That's a reference to the fullness of God. Colossians 2 and verse 9. For it in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Those who worshipped him as God knew and understood this, and you see those examples in Scripture as well. Jesus was fully God. But some, because he was fully God, would argue that he was not fully man. Something had to give there. Well, look at Hebrews chapter 4 here. Again, we're defining this from Scripture, not human physiology. Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16. Seeing then that we have a great high priest, in reference to Jesus Christ, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Confession is very important here. This is not profession, 
This is not you simply speaking that Jesus is Lord. It's not just something that comes from your lips. Confession is deeper, and it's backed up by what we do and who we are. It's admitted to at the very core, and and it prompts change. Verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as are we, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In knowing he was fully flesh, he was he faced all these temptations, all these all these challenges that we would face as well, knowing that we recognize that he was fully man. Jesus suffered in pain. He bled, he died. But here's here's the kicker. Everything he did, he did in the holy character of God. That is profound. So when he when he uh, forsakes his position as a spirit being in heaven and humbles himself and becomes a man, as, as is described in Philippians two, what remained? His character, his holy righteous character. In that he was fully God. This reveals that God's essence, his innate being, is holy, righteous character. Now, he is also all-knowing, right? All-seeing, all-powerful. Everything belongs to him. He can be anywhere he wants, anytime he wants. He understands even what's going on in every one of our individual hearts. But the essence of God is his holy, righteous character. That's what remained in Christ. Jesus, as God, would never be emptied of his holy, righteous character. He was fully God. Let's look at this now, and I want to spend some time on this. Uh, How does God dwell in flesh with respect to each member of God's church? We're in Hebrews. Stay uh, stay there. Uh, Go to uh, chapter 6. We've been here a lot. I'll just read this as a background. Hebrews 6, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection. When he says elementary principles of Christ, apply these elementary principles to those who simply profess Christ, but don't adopt these elementary principles within their drive and and their growth in, in holy, righteous character. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance, step one, from dead works, and of faith toward God, step two, of the doctrine of baptisms, immersion, step three, of the laying on of hands, step four, and then the resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment, leading to step seven, moving on to perfection. Now, uh, this step process, this this um, process that leads us to truly being a, a child of God, truly following and, and striving to be like Jesus Christ, those first three steps are important. It leads to the fourth. So first, God leads uh, repentant sinners to repent. So he, he grants repentance to them so that they can turn away from where they were going. And there has to be a mind to do that that he can work with. They have to be willing to do that. Then he moves them to believe, which is faith in his word. Those are the two foundational principles that lead to immersion. 
taking on the very death of Christ, being baptized. And the fourth one is to receive his Holy Spirit with the laying on of hands. It doesn't say that here, but we know the laying on of hands from Acts 8 and verse 17 is what imparts the Holy Spirit. And we should note here, the Holy Spirit is both the Spirit of the Father and the Spirit of the Son. Remember, they are one in spirit. You can't have one without the other. Let's look at Romans 8 here. I know this is elementary, but we need to lay this as a foundation to understand this mystery of Christ. Romans 8, verse 9, and we'll read through verse uh, 17. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. So once once hands are laid upon us by a minister of Jesus Christ, that minister asks that Christ, that God would impart his Spirit and place Christ with us, the very Spirit of God within us. Um, uh, and if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. We're on this, at this point, we begin this practice of righteousness that the Holy Spirit leads us into. That changes not only what we say and what we do, but who we are. And this should be noticeable. Verse 11, but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if the spirit, by the spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This is a description of a Christian. This is the biblical Description of one who is following Jesus Christ wherever he goes. By the Spirit, we put to death the deeds of the body. That is the pathway toward life. Verse 14, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, which is an indication we came out of bondage, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father, The Spirit himself, or itself, bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. This speaks toward the why. But for now, let's just understand the process of the how. When God's Spirit first begins to lead us, and it leads us from without, it's not within us yet, it's outside and, and, and kind of uh, influencing us, guiding us, and so on. And there are obvious things that we can see within ourselves that reveal that as well. The move toward repentance, the move toward uh, believing the scriptures to, so much that you want to apply them, and then eventually toward immersion. But when that leads, the Spirit leads from without, it changes what we do. When God's Spirit leads us from within, it changes who we are. This is all about a change from what we were to what we must be going forward. Look at Colossians chapter 1 here. I mentioned before that Colossians and Ephesians have a great deal of information with respect to these these mysteries of God, and they all kind of overlap. But examining each one individually, we'll read the same verses in a different context. This is the context of uh, the mystery of Jesus Christ or the mystery of Christ. Colossians 1, verses 24 through 27. 
Now I rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. Remember that. It's point one. Verse 25, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship or the dispensation, his work given to him by God, his commission from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. So he's teaching from the word of God, helping them to understand it better, fulfilling it by explaining this mystery. Verse 26, the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to who? His saints. To them God will to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So the mystery that has been hidden from for ages from everyone else in the world, including us at that time, we were all deceived. Satan is described at that as that in the Revelation 12, verse 9. He had deceived the whole world. We were called out of that deception to understand this mystery. Well, what is the mystery? Christ in our flesh. Christ living within our bodies. And, and again, to whom this is revealed, I mentioned it first, the church, the ecclesia. That's the Greek word for church, ecclesia, meaning an assembly of those that are called out or separated by God. From this massive group of people, he will call out a few that will have this privilege to have Christ within them. Um, They are called here and elsewhere the body of Christ. Other references in Romans, 1 Corinthians, Ephesians, and so on. The saints, this the second group that he describes, and it's the same group. The word saints is actually translated from the Greek word hagios, H-A-G-I-O-S, uh, meaning holy or sacred. At times we use it for something that is set apart. It's a designation of purity, of majesty, and glory, distinctive of God, uniquely distinctive of God, and that which he has admitted into his sphere. That's us. That's the Ecclesia. We are the saints. We are. Now, this is a change that happens within that can be seen. It's obvious. It may not be obvious to us personally because it happens over a very slow period of time. You don't, you don't necessarily recognize your change unless you're meeting with a body that can see that, recognize that, or your family can reveal that to you, how much you've changed, how much you've grown in the very nature of God. Christ in God's saints would not only be professing his name, they would be living by it. They would be confessing it. It would be part of their behavior. You would see it outwardly. Now let's go here. John chapter 3. Uh, I'm sorry, 1 John chapter 3. 1 John. John, uh, in writing off of much of what he wrote in the Gospels, in his epistles, is writing about this concept of love. And he's doing it in the setting of intense division in the church at the time. This is written late 80s, uh, early 90s uh, uh, AD. And uh, what he addresses mostly here is love, but he, he, he talks about it. He gives this in the context of the division that they were facing. And he's giving them tools to help them to understand what's going on around them. Uh, so look at the First John 3 and verse 24. 1 John 3, 24. And we'll also read... Um, Verse 4, because I want you to understand the context of what we're going to read in the middle. 
In verse 24, it says, Now he who keeps his commandments abides in him. Notice this concept of abiding in him and he in him. So not only us abiding in Christ, but Christ abiding within us. This is the context here. Forget about the chapter break. That's not in the inspired Greek. Um, now he who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. Christ, what did Christ say? If you love me, keep my commandments. There's, this, there's a, an action of obedience that you can see. How can somebody say, I worship the Lord Jesus Christ and not keep his commandments? Or not follow his lead as he kept the Ten Commandments and all the Word of God? Um, and by this we know that he abides in us. By the Spirit whom he has given us. What is that Spirit? How is it described in the pages of Scripture? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, uh, the, the meekness of godly wisdom, any number of ways it can be described that we should see growing within us when Christ is in us. Uh, now, now, verse 4 of chapter 4. So the setting 1 through 3 is in this context. Verse 4, you are of God, little children, and have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. He's still talking about he who is in us. So we have to frame verses 1 through 3 in that context. He mentions this any number of times in 1 John. You could just write down these references. In fact, we're in 1 John. Let's just briefly turn to them. Chapter 2, verse 24. Therefore, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. Abiding. What is abiding in us? Who is called the beginning and the end? Verse 27. But the anointing which you have received from him abides in you, and you do not need that anyone should teach you, but as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things and is true and is not a lie and just as is taught you, you will abide in him. Look at chapter 3, verse 9. Whoever has been born of God does not sin for his seed remains in him and he can't, cannot sin because he has been born or begotten by God through his spirit. This entire this entire section is talking about Christ abiding within us. And you can see why this is important at a time of massive division, people separating all over the place, looking only at the surface, the ceremony, the ritual, and not seeing what's underneath. This is what he's trying to point to and helping them to discern with. Look at chapter 4, verses 12 through 16. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love has been perfected in us. This is a, this is a clear indication. Love would abide in an individual in whom Christ dwelt. Verse 13, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son as Savior to the, of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in him. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God, and God in him. This is all This is all the, the theme of the book. Love within the individual, God abides in. One spirit, God and Christ, abiding in someone converted. Now, let's look at, the, let's look at these verses that follow uh, verse 24, chapter 3. Verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. 
By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. I'm reading the New King James here. If you have the King James, you'll notice that that says Jesus Christ is, present tense, come in the flesh, is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God or is come in flesh, if you have the King James, a more accurate translation, and I'll explain in a moment. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist. Wow. The Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and now is already, or is now already, in this world. If that was 2,000 years ago, roughly, how much more so today? Let's look at these verses individually. Back in verse 1 of chapter 4. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. We're told in 1 Thessalonians 5.21 by the Apostle Paul that we are to test all things. We've often talked about being as the Bereans of Acts 17 and verse 11, where Paul says they searched the scriptures to see if these things were true. Followers of Christ are to be discerning, critical thinkers. We don't just, in in this process of being nice, which I don't see that as a description of Christians in the Bible. It's much deeper than that. Certainly we're supposed to be nice, but is that the only qualification? Followers of Christ are to be discerning, critical thinkers, discriminating and judicious as they follow Christ. We don't just assume everyone else who's nice is heading on the same path and doing the same thing. That's not the description. We must use God's word as the Bereans to prove the spirit behind the words. We have to face and defeat deception. Don't leave here today thinking that you're not deceived because you sit here each Sabbath or even because you read the word of God. Others do the same thing and are deceived, even within the church of God. In Deuteronomy 13, verses 1 through 3, I'll just refer you to the next three scriptures here. God warns Israel that he will allow deceivers among his people to test them, to see if they would continue to keep his commandments and understand their importance. In 2 Peter 2, verses 1 through 3, which we read earlier, Peter defined denying Christ as a very pernicious way that many would follow so that even the truth would be spoken of as evil. You see any examples of that today? By self-proclaimed Christians, by professing Christians, standing up and saying the Bible is hate speech, because it speaks out against something that I really like or I want to support. You can't just accept that. We, We have to recognize that that's hypocritical, That is not somebody living by the word of God, therefore not being led by the spirit of God. This can only come. Think about this. This can only come about if somebody's standing up calling the truth a lie or speaking of it as evil. How can that come about if Christ is defined by the word of God only? That could only happen if Christ or a Christ is defined outside of or in opposition to the truth, to God's word. That's the only way that happens. 
Then we know it's possible. The Bible says so. Titus 1, verse 6. Titus 1, 6 says that it is possible for someone's words to embrace Christ while their works deny him. The Spirit is revealed by works, actions, deeds, and it must be so evaluated. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 29, If you know that he, in reference to Christ, is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him or begotten of him. Men don't birth anyone. Men begot. So when you see this reference, this word, um, I, I think it's dekau. I shouldn't say that. In the, in the Greek, it literally means could be begotten or born. When you see it in the reference with a man, it's a begotten. Everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Doesn't that mean that everyone who does not is not? The righteous do righteousness. We may not be good at it, but we're trying. Because God says, keep trying, keep doing this. We leave the result to him. That's faith. And we get up every day and, as we heard a month or so ago, keep pushing that rock even if you don't move it. The righteous do righteousness as a practice, as defined by the righteousness of Christ in God's word. Nothing outside of that. Look at the first John again, three verses seven through nine. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins, who violates God's law, who disregards God's word is of the devil For the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. I hear too many professing Christians saying that that's our job today. Go through the gates of hell and destroy the works of the devil. Is that our job? Is it? What is it? Whose job is it? It's Christ's job, not ours. What power do we have to destroy the works of the devil? Christ in us will destroy the works of the devil in us as we follow and obey him. It's not something we do. He does for us. Do we usurp his power and his work in doing so? Makes no sense. But you hear this coming from those who profess but don't confess. The righteous do righteousness just as the unrighteous do unrighteousness. Consistently as a practice, as defined by the unrighteousness of Satan, also illustrated in the work or the word of God. Back in chapter 4 now, let's let's read this uh, verse 2, the first part of it. By this you know the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesses. I've made mention of this and I read a number of verses uh, prior to this. We have to understand the difference between profession and confession. Confession has its basis in self-revelation. Wow, I did do it. Wow, I am a sinner. I do need to repent. There's an acceptance that goes on inside that changes what we do outside. Not just what we say, but what we do. The heart accepts the truth, and that acceptance is openly and honestly expressed. Not just in words, but also in actions. A change of life. And how one lives. True confession is declared not only verbally, but by actions. One who confesses accepts responsibility to respond. 
This is especially true as concerns the confession of the Holy Spirit. Now, think of this as somebody in a court of law. When they confess, they accept the punishment. There's a mindset. They don't want it. They, don't, they would love to be able to get out of it. They would love mercy from the judge or the jury. But when they confess, they're recognizing in their mind and heart, you know what, I did it. And I'll accept whatever punishment comes to me. This, this is the mindset of somebody who truly is being led by God's Spirit to have Christ and God reside within by their spirit. Part B of this verse now, verse 2, that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, is of God. Uh, Vines says this about the word that is translated, is come. It's the Greek word erkomai, one word, E-R-C-H-O-M-A-I. Vine says that this word is always used in the present tense. This is why we know the King James Version that says is come is a better translation than has come. This is not a reference to Christ having come in the past in human form. This is present tense, is come, not has come. The word abiding here as well uh, uh is the Greek word uh, translated meno. M- the word is M-E-N-O, and it's used 24 times in this letter. First John is all about Christ abiding in us, and, and Paul reaffirms that in-, in many of his writings. The confession that John is referring to here is not that Jesus came past tense in the flesh of a human being, but that Jesus comes in flesh now. Remember the context of these verses. This is not just a reference to what happened in the past. It's a reference to something that is ongoing. Christ coming in the flesh of human beings. We live by his spirit in our flesh, in our bodies. And it should be evident in our bodies. When it's not, there's a problem. Jesus comes now in our flesh, in the flesh of all true believers, his spirit dwelling in them. The Church of God in this age has taught this since 1957. You can find the first article on this in 57, another one in the 60s, another one in the 19 in 1980, and it's been a a foundation of our teaching and beliefs ever since. Don't let anyone change this on you. Remember the context and remember the, the the text of the words. Now, such an influence, God's Spirit abiding within, would be evident in words and actions. They would be confessed in works, fruit consistent with those of Jesus, the Word of God. So if someone says to you that I I profess Jesus Christ, we should see evidence of that in the flesh. When Christ lives within us, his words become our words. His works become our works. We should see that in ourselves, but also in anyone professing this. Um, when John the Baptist was greeting the, the uh, greeting is a, a politically correct term, when he was greeting the Pharisees and Sadducees that came to be baptized, what did he say? What are you doing here, you brood of vipers? Uh, bring fruits, meat for repentance first before you seek baptism. Step one is repentance. They weren't changing, but they came to be cleansed in baptism anyway. Uh, those uh, that are changed into the very image of God reflect the word of God in word and in action, the words and actions of Christ. Now verse 3 here in First John 4. 
And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Again, this is New King James that I'm reading from. King James says, is come in flesh. Is not of God. You don't see these actions. If you don't see a change in what someone does leading to who they are, is that the Holy Spirit speaking? And this is the spirit of the Antichrist. How could it be the spirit of God and Jesus the Christ living in someone who professes this but does not confess it? When John here says it's actually the spirit of Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and now is already in the world. The prefix anti here in Greek could mean two things. Neither of them are good. Uh, Anti could be translated in opposition to or in replacement of. Neither of these two are good for an individual who is professing but not confessing Christ, not doing as he did, not not keeping his, his own commandments, the commandments of the Godhead given to us. We all know that the spirit that opposes Christ is Satan, yet he rarely appears this way on the surface. He tries to use Scripture to deceive Notice that. That was Matthew 4 when he, when he faced Christ. He, used, he threw Christ's own words back at him out of context, but Christ was discerning enough. Obviously, he inspired the words to know their context and know how they should be translated. You hear somebody spewing the word of God, and you think, well, he knows his Bible. Satan knows his Bible. Probably better than we do, at least from a you know, word-for-word regurgitation effort. we got to know it better. How do we know it better? Study, 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 memorize, stay up till wee hours of the morning for years. Is there some test that you can pass? Yeah. It's called life. How do we know God's Word better than Satan when the Holy Spirit in us, Christ in us, leads us to practice it. And it becomes part of us. It becomes written in the heart. That's how you defeat him. No other way. Satan knows the Bible better than, than, than us, but only from a, uh, an academic perspective. We know it better when it becomes part of us. Uh, John is exposing in this series of verses the spirit behind false Christianity Uh, that seeks to replace Christ or oppose Christ, the Christ of Scripture, with multiple counterfeits that actually stand opposed to him and actually make it so much incredibly more difficult to understand. Tens of thousands of denominations, 2.6 billion Christians that don't apply the Word of God, don't keep his Sabbaths commanded, Sabbaths, don't keep his commanded holy days. And because of that, because they don't practice it, they don't understand the mystery of Christ, the mystery of Christ within us, which Paul described as our hope of glory. Those with God's spirit within will not only profess Christ in words, they will reflect Christ in works. That's the how. That's the process. Now the why. Why does God dwell in flesh? Why was that the plan 
for the Logos, and why is that the plan for everyone that follows Christ wherever he goes? We read in, in uh, John 1, verses 1 through 5, and I, I told you we would come back to this. I'd like to turn to John 3 now and see how this happens. John 3, we'll read verses 16 through 21. This is a, a verse you see quoted quite often uh, within many Christian churches throughout the world, uh, Christ, Christian by label, but, but they rarely read afterwards. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Absolutely true. Word of God. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Absolutely true. Word of God. And we don't condemn the world. This is not a message of condemnation. This is a message that is trying to lift up your aspirations not to be just like the ones around us who only profess, but do we really, truly confess Christ in everything we do, everything we say, everything we are? Is that our aspiration? Because that's what moves us on to perfection. Verse 18, he who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light, this is mentioned in, in the beginning of, uh, of chapter 1, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Now, we think of evil from a Hollywood perspective, right? Guy with the black hat, uh, murdering people, chopping them up with a chainsaw. That's evil, right? That's what's really bad. Is that what God calls evil? Verse 20, for everyone practicing evil hates the light. Okay, so if anyone hates the light that is Christ, the reason he came, the truth he brought, it is, that is what he's calling evil here. Let's go on. And does not come to the light. Doesn't come to the, doesn't come to the word of God to decide and understand who Christ actually is, but is just willing to accept whatever this church or that church or anybody else says because it's a nice, comfy place to meet. It's close by. Hey, I could even walk there. They also have a racquetball court. It's fun. They have a praise band. Okay, sorry. Verse 20. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth, notice this, he does the truth doesn't just know it. He acts on it. He confesses it in his very being. He or she, that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. Done in God. Those who do not come to the light are described as practicing evil. And those who come to the light are described as those who are doing the truth. Doing the truth versus the practice of evil. Practicing evil is not always seen as evil, especially when you don't describe that by the word of God. So Sunday services, Christmas, Easter, Halloween, there are many nice people who do not know that God hates those things. How do we know he hates them? It's right here. You know, in Amos 5, he talks about this specifically to Israel. 
uh, verses 21 through 24, that he says he hates your feasts. He hates them, hates your prayers, hates the noise of your songs. So some of the feasts can look really, really pretty. Lots of pretty lights, nice decorations and flowers, right? And the prayers can sound extremely sincere, but in the heart is not a willingness to go to the Word of God to understand what they should be praying about. But but you know what? They have great humanitarian efforts, don't they? Some of these professing Christians, they go out of their way to help and serve others, and that's wonderful. Are they of us? Do they have the Spirit of Christ within them? Not apart from the Word of God in practice. It's something that we must recognize. There are many nice people who blind their eyes to the light that is the Word of God. Of God. My first two years in the church, I told you this when we started this series, I was so excited. Many of you went through probably the same thing. So excited. I tried from the scriptures to explain it to lots of nice people my family, my friends, my co workers, anyone that would listen to me. And all I did was alienate them. Here it is in the Word of God. Here it is. Oh, no, that's your interpretation. No, no, no. This is a commandment. I'm just reading what it says. I'm not interpreting. This is what it says. Well, I don't, I don't want to do that. Basically, it comes down to what I want to do. Many are called, so the invitation goes out, but few are chosen. Now, those who understand the life and death of Jesus Christ realize that in it, God's explicit requirement for justice, as well as his infinite love of mercy, has to hold true. Loving mercy applied within his justice. God demands justice, where his word says that. And it's death for sin, ultimately, but also demands mercy, reconciliation. This dichotomy in a human mind is resolved in God's mind because God demands God in flesh. And the firstborn, Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, and in all those he would call to follow him. The death of, of Jesus Christ in our place was the only answer. And both of them knew that from the foundation of the world. We see that in Revelation 13. Now, those who acknowledge Jesus Christ while living apart from God's law do not understand why the Logos had to come in the first place. They don't understand the mystery that is Christ, which in him is embedded and, it, and is the foundation, Jesus Christ, of God's plan for saving all humanity. But that's not understood. How that works is not understood. Some believe they can, it can happen apart from the law, apart from the word of God. It doesn't work that way. God the Logos came in the flesh of Jesus Christ to reveal how the power of God within overcomes sinful flesh. He never sinned. The power of God within him would not allow him to sin. If we recognize, honor, and respect the power of God within us, it will lead us in the same direction. Christ's suffering, his death, and his resurrection opened this path to salvation for all of humanity. But in this age, chiefly now in those God is calling and uh, electing is those who confess him. Again, many today profess Jesus as the Christ, but do not practice the righteousness of those who truly understand this mystery. So, 
Apart from application, they can't understand it. Okay, that's the why of why Christ came. Why in us? Why does God dwell in each member of God's church? Let's finish here in Ephesians 3. Ephesians chapter 3, we'll read verses 8 through 19. Again, I, we are not, I am not going over this so we can condemn others. That's clearly not God's purpose. But to recognize the amazing goal that he gave us and the amazing power that relies, resides within us so that goal can be achieved, how we could truly be changed by his spirit within us. Um, Ephesians 3, verses 8 through 19. Ephesians 3, verse, uh, Ephesians 3 and verse 8. To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church, those in whom his spirit dwells, to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. Again, we've read this before. I just want us to read it again and understand it from this context, the mystery of Christ. Verse 11, according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. You've got to be pretty bold to say, yeah, Christ lives in me. Yeah, I'm going to be a member of the God family. Because God said he's going to complete the work he began in me, and that's his plan. You think, you think those who do not understand the mystery of Christ would understand that statement? What would they think? That's pretty bold. Yeah. <laughs> but that's God talking, not me. Verse 13, Therefore I ask that you do not lose heart in my tribulations for you, which is your glory. For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. The family. I'll read a quote here in a moment uh, from a long time ago that helped us understand that better. That he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And Christ dwells within. That is the ultimate aim, that each one of us would have all the fullness of God. This is a, a quote here from Mystery of the Ages, a book by Mr. Armstrong. It was written back in the early 80s. I'll just read it. God is a family composed at present of the two persons of John 1, verses 1 through 4. But with many thousands already begotten by God's Spirit, in God's true church, soon to be born into that divine family at Christ's return to earth, Jesus Christ, by his resurrection, was born a divine son of God, the firstborn so born into the God family. Both God and Christ are composed of spirit. God is creator of all that exists. Both God and the word who became Christ have existed eternally and before all else. From them emanates their spirit. 
by which God dwells in his elect. God the Father is the divine father of the God family into which truly converted Christians shall be born. So, unquote. Brethren, Christ comes in our flesh so that God's begotten offspring will be born into his eternal family. Couldn't happen any other way. The Spirit of God, the Father, and his Christ resides in those who practice his truth in his light. Every word of God in every example of Jesus Christ. That's what defines us. The Holy Spirit in one's heart affects not just what one says, but what one does, leading to who we are or what one is. This alone changes who we are. This alone transforms humans from the behavior of sinful flesh to the righteous character of the God family. Only those led by God's Spirit to practice His righteousness understand this mystery of Christ.